The passage we're about to study has very explicit material regarding sex. There are things that will be discussed that have a sexual nature. So you've been forewarned, those with children with young ears. And so I want to keep this as PG as possible. My goal here is not to be provocative. My goal here is to honor Jesus and his word. I taught a a message a few weeks ago about the forbidden woman and the dangers of sexual promiscuity and how it robs us of our souls, our very being. But thanks to uh, Mr. Irwin, ordering of the passages, you get to hear me talk about it twice. Um, Except this time within the context of marriage. Now, for some of you, this will be uh, new territory. Some of you, this will be a refresher and hopefully will uh, ignite passion for one another in your marriages. Uh, A lot of us growing up in the church only heard about the bad side of sex, about staying away from it outside of marriage. And we're told about how it can damage us and rob us of our being and cause destruction in our wake. But rarely does the church talk about the benefits of sex within a marriage covenant, how it is to be enjoyed, practiced regularly, and kept sacred between a husband and a wife. Well, today's the day. And hopefully those of you who are in your teens and young adults who are single, this message will encourage you to look forward to the day where you can truly experience this wonderful gift of God. For those of you already married, hopefully the Lord will reignite your passion for one another and strengthen your marriage. Now, in order to understand what Solomon is telling us, his son here in this passage that we just read, we must understand the context. In verses 1 through 6, Solomon instructs his son wisdom in staying away from the forbidden woman. This woman is promiscuous, looking for a young man to conquer. She speaks words of flattery as he uses the imagery, smoother than oil or sweet as honey, her words are. She uses her body to seduce him. She she wants to trap him like an animal. Verses 7 through 14, Solomon warns his son how his life will be ruined if he engages with such a woman. It would never be the same and have lasting, destructive effects. I think of David when he committed adultery with Bathsheba. There was upheaval in his house the rest of his days. And the Lord confirmed this by telling David, the sword will never depart from your house. But now in verses 15 through 23, Solomon takes a different posture. He encourages his son to be intoxicated by his wife's beauty, to be aroused by her femininity, to enjoy sex with the wife of his youth, and to cherish his wife. Now, let me clarify something before I move on, because I think that this is worth noting. There's one side of the church that says, wives, you exist to satisfy your husband's sexual needs anytime he wants it. That is part of your duty as a wife. That's what one side of the church will say. Well, this has major flaws because it treats your wife or your spouse as an object, something to be used and not cherished. You are co-heirs in the grace of life and are to treat each other with dignity, value, worth, purpose, and respect. In fact, it says in Ephesians, 
I believe it's chapter five or four, where he says, you are to submit to one another. Now there's the other side of the church, the other side of the spectrum, perhaps you would call it more liberal, where the spouse says, it's my body and I will give it when I want. No one tells me what to do. I decide when or when not to give up my sexuality to my spouse. Now to withhold sex from your spouse as a means of manipulation to get what you want is sinful. You don't withhold yourself. This is also flawed because we are sexual beings and with needs and we're to also engage in sex and marriage consistently as God commands because this creates a greater bond, oneness and protection against sexual immorality. First Corinthians seven, one through eight, Paul gives a detailed answer on how to work this out in our marriages. He says the husband and wife do not have authority over their bodies, but are to be used in serving one another. The attitude God commands is to serve each other. So meet each other's needs. Genesis two tells us that God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, that God removed a rib from his side. Now the word rib appears 41 times in the Hebrew It appears as side 19 times, chamber 11 times, boards twice, corners twice, rib twice, another once, beams once, and the word leaves once, L-E-A-V-E-S. What what God did is he removed not just his physical rib, but in part, part of his essence, part of his person. And he made woman. See, woman received the part of his essence, that was, which was taken out of him. Now, Adam had all the personality traits of a man and a woman, as weird as that sounds. He was sensitive, and yet he was, let's go to war, or manly, or whatever you want to call it. He had all those personality traits, but he was alone, and God said it's not good for him to be alone, so God made Eve from Adam so that they would come together as one and multiply the earth. So when, uh, as, as one of my favorite pastors, Ken Graves up in Bangor, Maine, likes to, said, likes to say, when Adam woke up that day from that deep sleep, he woke up and he said, I feel, I feel nothing. <laughs> so he saw Eve standing there and God looks at him and commands him, Son, be fruitful and multiply. Yes, sir, I must obey God. Now, there's only one way a man and a woman, a husband and a wife, become one person. Become one. Is it through vows? Is it when you kiss the bride? Is it when you sign the marriage license? No. It's when you come together in sexual union that you become one. And the more you come together in your marriage, in sexual union, the more one you become. You become two souls meshed together. This is huge. That is why this area is so important. It's not everything, but it is critical. So when does God consider someone to be married? When does God consider someone to be one? It is when... They conjugate. 
That is why sex out of mar- sex outside of marriage is so dangerous because the person that you've engaged with becomes a part of you for the rest of your life. And you bring that person into your marriage with you. And so the general rule in marriage is that one of you is more sexually hungry than the other. And I've seen instances of both through my years in ministry. If you are the husband or wife who loves sex, it doesn't mean that you should get it all the time. If you are the husband or wife who doesn't desire it as much, it doesn't mean that you withhold it whenever you want. Both of you don't get to have your way. But you find a balance between yourselves. If you are the more sexually active, you need to learn to cherish your spouse in in other ways. Maybe for your wife by touching and and caring and serving, just cuddling up on the couch together, making her feel special. It's the way to her heart, the way that she loves being served. If you're less sexually active, you don't have the right to withhold that from your spouse. You can take the posture of Jesus and serve your spouse with sex. The bottom line is both of you need to find a sweet spot where both of your needs are met. Bottom line, you both need to take the posture of servants to one another. And this will de- this will ensure a deeper oneness with one another and strengthen your marriage so as to prevent the devil from dividing you, as Paul also describes in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, let me also clarify one more thing. I want to be sensitive to the fact that some of you have experienced sexual abuse in your past. There are some deep wounds that you're working through that have carried into your marriage. I want to be sensitive to the fact that this area is a struggle for you and that you're working things out in your marriage. And what I'm teaching here in Proverbs 5 is a general rule of thumb in marriage. If you struggle in this area, you're not a failure. You're not a failure. You're a beautiful child of God who was a victim, and it's not your fault. You're not responsible. And I wish I had answers for you, but I don't. What I do know is we serve a God who heals and restores through his gospel by the power of his Holy Spirit. So that the wounds of your sexual abuse were laid on your Savior. So that he will restore your soul to wholeness and healing. Jesus felt every bit of the pain, fear, and trauma of your abuse on Calvary. He knows what it feels like. And maybe you desire to have that intimacy with your spouse. And there's things to overcome. And we understand. So as you hear this message, please keep that in mind. That we're praying for you and we love you. So Solomon begins by saying in verse 15 through 17, look at it with me. Solomon says, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Drink water from your own cistern, your own well, he says. Notice the imagery Solomon uses here regarding cisterns and wells. Cisterns in ancient Israel were subterranean reservoirs that could cover as much as an acre of land. And these cisterns were dug in to gather rainwater uh, that came in the spring. The rains would come in the spring in Israel. 
So vast were these reservoirs throughout Israel that during a siege, the nation would never be in want for a water supply. And cisterns were typically hewed into rock and, and lined with masonry or cement. So the idea was that cisterns were a wellspring if you needed them. It, was, it represents a place in this context for you to quench your sexual thirst. We're sexual beings made by God to express and explore our sexuality with joy and freedom with our spouses. Your husband, your wife is your wellspring. Have fun in Jesus' name. Ladies, don't be afraid to put on something revealing for him to make his eyeballs pop out of his head. Gentlemen, buy her flowers. Clean the house. Give her a massage. Be attentive to her needs. Make her feel like she's the most beautiful woman in the world. And don't take your eyes off of her. Banter back and forth. Throw innuendos at each other. It's fun, and God gave that to you as a gift in your marriage. Now, let me speak to those of you with children. I get it. I, I have five myself. You're exhausted, you're tired, and your bedroom soirees can be the last thing on your mind at night. I mean, all you want to do is hit the pillow and go to sleep. And so Tara and I raise our five kids ourselves and we get it. But let me say how important it is, even while you're raising children, to have regular intimacy with one another. It strengthens and cultivates your marriage. You schedule it. You schedule it. And talk about it with your spouse because it's helpful. And set time aside for one another. And what you'll find is the anticipation and the buildup will take place and you'll look forward with your rendezvous with your spouse. So Solomon also says, should your spring be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? So Solomon says here, why waste your springs on the streets? Don't share this precious resource with anyone else. It's for you and you alone. Your water isn't going to do any good on a street where horses, chariots, and people trample on. Your water isn't going to do any good there. Nothing grows there. Nothing is cultivated there. It'll dry up and be wasted. In ancient Israel, a cistern existed to cultivate your crops. And in the same way, sexual intimacy is there to cultivate your marriage. Don't waste it on anyone else or anything like pornography or anything else. Now, why is this important? Charles Cameron, this is for you. I don't want to hear you complain that I don't ever talk about this passage. No, I thank you for bringing it to my attention because he's right. Here's why. Paul addresses it in Ephesians 5, 31 through 33. He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. The two will become one flesh, one person, one entity. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul here uses the words spoken back in Genesis. The two will become one flesh. Now, biblically speaking, there's only one act. There's only one act where two people become one. 
And you guessed it. It's through sexual union. The two don't become one when they say I do or exchange vows. There's nowhere in scripture to support that. The two become one person. The idea is oneness. We are one with Christ by his spirit is what Paul is trying to get across in Ephesians 5. And in a similar way, we are one with our husband and wife. It models, it mirrors the church and our, and our relationship with Christ to the world. Our marriages are a reflection of Christ and his church. We are modeling for the world what Christ and the church looks like. And there's a deep private relationship with Christ with his church. He shares himself only with his church. That's what communion is. It's a deep, intimate act of Christ's sacrifice where he invites us to share in a personal relationship with him. That's why divorce amongst Christians is so damaging. Because in a sense, it tells the world that God's love is conditional. It's not covenantal. That's what it tells the world. Now, for those of you who are divorced, I'm not slamming you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I'm just merely uh, stating what the scripture says. It's, it's merely a reflection of God's perfect order in the things of marriage. There is a gospel mystery that is displayed within marriage. It's a reflection of Christ in his church. And throughout the years, Tara and I have been married, that we've been married, we've seen God use our marriage as one of our biggest ministries. I'm sure those of you who love Jesus and are married have seen that too. When we were first married, uh, one of our, uh, a gal that, that Tara and I are friends with, uh, worked with at the Hotel Del Coronado there in San Diego. And uh, she ended up getting engaged and she told us one of the reasons why I came to Christ is because I saw you and Tara's marriage just by watching. Now that's not to say that Tara and I have this perfect marriage. But again, the mystery of the gospel comes through marriage. And it's a huge ministry. Look at verse 18 and 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight and be intoxicated always in her love. Solomon here in verse 18 uses the imagery of a fountain. A fountain is used for refreshment, for rejuvenation. A fountain is therapeutic and nourishing. Solomon describes here that you are a gift to each other. That you are to serve one another in, in sexual pleasure and bless one another. And also notice Solomon says, and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Solomon is encouraging his son to engage with his wife of his youth. The longer you're married and the more meaningful your bedroom is, you will grow even closer together become more one and you'll get better at it. Sex is like wine. It gets better with time and age. And he, and look at the imagery. He says a lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. In other words, be intoxicated by your wife, gentlemen. The word intoxicated in Hebrew is the, is the verb saga, which means to be staggered, to be staggered or to be led astray. 
It, it, suggests, it suggests the idea of just being totally captivated by her love. Adam looked at Eve and was very eager to become one flesh with her. And this was God's design. He desires that a husband be totally captivated by his wife, by her graceful beauty. To be ravished. Waltke, Bruce Waltke points out about this, this image of let her breast satisfy you. The word breast is the diet which originated as, as infant's babble, he says. It's associated with erotic literature and other places in scripture, including Ezekiel 23, uh, chapter 8 and chapter 21. But the ultimate point is made here where Solomon says to his son, let your wife satisfy your sexual needs. God provided a place for you, son, to have your needs filled within the marriage covenant. This is the way that I explained it to my sons, my three boys. I'm so proud of them. I told them I was hired by a local company a couple of years ago to do a web, some web and software development. But this company only hired me on the basis of a contract, which means that they could end the contract at any moment. And so I had no benefits, no paid time off. I had to be on call. I had to work one weekend a month. Not only that, but the environment that I worked in was very toxic. There was no commitment on their part other than the fact that they would pay me. So it was merely just transactional. And sure enough, I was let go from the company 11 months later. Then by God's grace, a web developer position opened up at Comporium. The interview process went really well. They offered me a good salary, bonus structure, plenty of PTO, a flexible work schedule, great people to work with, and a few other pretty cool little perks. And they really went overboard to show their commitment to me. And when I was hired three and a half years ago, they even let me fly out to California right after I was hired with no PTO to officiate my brother's wedding. Now, the first company made no commitment. It was merely transactional. But Comporium made a solid commitment and welcomed me with open arms. Which company do you think I wanted to work harder for? <laughs> Comporium, of course, because now we're in a more committed relationship. It's the same way with sex. It's a covenant. It's not merely transactional. If it's just transactional, then it loses its power, its effectiveness, and is destructive. You become one with that person you're not committed to, and that person, like it or not, is now a part of your being for the rest of your life. And if you want to know what that looks like in Scripture, read 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You carry that person into every part of your life. But within the covenant, it is pure, blessed by God, effective, and enjoyed to the other uttermost. The best quality of sex you can have is within marriage. Period. Because that's how God designed it. If you want the best, then it's only within a covenant of marriage. That's how God created it. Listen to what Song of Songs 2 through 4, uh, chapter 2, 4 through 6. This is the, 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 I believe she's the Shulamite woman. She says, he brought me to the banqueting house and his banner was over me was love. 
Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples. By the way, guys, don't say that to your wife. For I'm sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now, what do you think they're doing? Now, there's a pl- now listen to this. This is what I found interesting. There is a plethora of benefits when it comes to covenant sex. According to the website of Very Well Mind, they researched several studies of the physical and mental benefits of sex within marriage. The first, I'll, I'll read the psychological benefits. The, you have a better self-image. Sex can boost a more accepted view of yourself because your spouse finds you attractive. It boosts your worth and esteem and reduce feelings of insecurity. This leads to more positive perceptions of yourself. There's higher rates of happiness. According to a 2015 study conducted in China, more consensual sex within, uh, and better quality increases happiness. Now, granted, they're, they're kind of speaking from a world point of view, but I think that, that it certainly benefits even more within a covenant of marriage. Number three, there's more bonding. Brain chemicals are released during sex, including endorphins, which, increase, which decrease irritability and feelings of depression. Another hormone, oxytocin. The hug drug increases with stimulation and other activity. Oxytocin helps foster a sense of calmness and contentment. Number four, relief from stress. Chronic stress may contribute to lower sex frequency. However, sex can be an effective stress management technique. It reduces stress response hormones like cortisol and adrenaline. Number five, it improves the quality of sleep. The crescendo triggers the release of the hormone prolactin, which aids in sleep. Now the physical benefits. Sex is a form of exercise. According to the American Heart Association, uh, this activity is equivalent to moderate physical exercise, like brisk walking or climbing two flights of stairs. Number two, it enhances brain function. Preliminary studies on rats found that more Frequent intercourse was correlated with better cognitive function and the growth of new brain cells. Similar benefits have since been observed in human studies. 2018 study of over 6,000 adults linked frequent sex with better memory performance, especially in those of age 15 or over. Hallelujah! (laughs) Number three, improved immune function. Are you getting this? Improved immune function. Will somebody please call Dr. Fauci? (laughs) Being more uh, sexually active has positive effects on your immune system. Do you think God designed this? Regular sex, it may even lower your likelihood of getting the cold or flu. It boosts your body the ability to make protective antibodies against bacteria, viruses, and other germs. Number four, lower pain levels. The endorphins from sex can promote more than just a sense of well-being and calm. The endorphins appear to reduce migraines, according to several studies. It It may promote weight loss. I don't have to explain that one has positive cardiac effects. It's been elevated with lower, it's been associated with lower systolic blood pressure. Uh, it helps dilate blood vessels in your heart 
and decrease the and, and, and increase the delivery of oxygen and nutrients throughout your body. It also has additional other benefits that I, I won't go into detail, but being more sexually active within marriage will boost libido. It's uh, it's even several studies have even indicated that it can have lighter menstrual periods in women. Less painful periods. In addition, an improved sense of smell, healthier teeth, better digestion, glowing skin may be related to the release of the natural chemical called DHEA by the body after sex. So Solomon goes on. Why should, verse 20, look at verse 20. Why should, why should you be intoxicated, my son? Listen to Solomon. Why? After all of that with your wife, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? What's the point, son, when God has given you the wife of your youth? Why would you trade? Please don't misunderstand me. Don't send me emails with with what I'm about to say. But why would you trade a prime rib steak for a McDonald's cheeseburger? Why would you? Why would you trade the beautiful woman that God has given you for someone who gives herself to just anybody? It makes no sense. It's like Solomon is grabbing his son by the collar and saying, listen to me. When the husband and wife are faithful to each other and when they obey the scriptures, like in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 through 5, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23, neither of them will look for satisfaction anywhere else, or they shouldn't. They love each other and seek to please each other in the Lord. Their relationship will be one of deepening joy and satisfaction and they will not look for greener grass. And, and if you are looking for greener grass, the grass may be greener, but boy, the water bill sure is a lot higher too. So he goes on to say in verse 21, for a man's ways before the eyes of the Lord, a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord and he ponders all his paths. So Solomon gives his son motivation to use his sexuality wisely. He admonishes him that the Lord watches everything he does. And the Lord is constantly examining the paths and motivations of our hearts. And that alone should give us all pause. You cannot get away with sin. I cannot get away with sin. We can hide it from everyone else, but God sees it. And he even goes on to say, the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. You see, the deceitfulness of sin is that it promises freedom, but only ends in slavery. It promises joy, but it only brings sorrow. It promises satisfaction, but only brings discontentment. Being bound in sexual sin leads to slavery. But being bound in a marital covenant, it brings freedom and joy. And joy. He goes on to say he dies for a lack of, of discipline. Persistence paid off for American astronomer Clyde Tombaugh, who discovered the planet Pluto. After astronomers calculated a profitable orbit for this suspected heavenly body, Tombaugh 
took up the search in March of 1929. Time magazine recorded the investigation. He examined scores of telescopic photographs, each showing tens of thousands of star images and pairs under a dual microscope. It often took three days to scan one pair of photographs. It was exhausting, eye-cracking work. And in his own words, it was brutal and tedious. And it went on for months. Star by star, he examined 20 million images. Can you imagine? Then on February 8, 1930, as he was blinking at a pair of photographs in the constellation Gemini, he said, I suddenly came upon the image of Pluto. It was the most dramatic astronomic discovery in nearly 100 years. Now, being disciplined in your relationship with the Lord and pouring over the scriptures as Clyde Tombaugh poured over celestial photographs, spending time in prayer, fellowshipping with your brothers and sisters in your small group, you'll begin to discover the Lord's reward in seeking him with your whole heart. And this will extend to your relationship with your spouse. You must seek, learn, and work to experience the fruit of this in your marriage. It takes work, but boy, is it worth it. Is it worth it? And the rewards for you will be incredible. In closing, I wanted to describe to you a Jewish wedding from antiquity. According to the Talmud, which is the body of Jewish uh, civil and ceremonial law, the prospective groom would leave his father's house and travel in search of a bride. It was not uncommon for the groom to travel great distances and be away from home for an extended period of time. Once he met his future bride, he would visit the bride's home and family and purchase her for a bride price. This price was a surety or insurance for the bride in case he was unfaithful or he died. He was to take care of her right up front for the rest of her life. This is called a dowry. And once the dowry was given, they entered into a binding contract in Hebrew called the ketubah. And from that moment on, the bride is now set apart, sanctified exclusively for the bridegroom alone. And get this. They signified this contract by drinking a cup of wine while the rabbi sang a betrothal benediction. The ketubah was so binding that the couple at that point was considered married. And this explains why in the incarnation story that Joseph sought to put away Mary quietly because they were already considered married. The dowry had been given. The ketubah had been uh, ratified. And there was no backing out. Are you seeing the picture here? Jesus Christ, our bridegroom, left his father's house and traveled to our home, searching for a prospective bride. Jesus purchased us for a bride price with his own blood. As his bride, we joyously consent to the match And celebrate that by taking communion to remind ourselves of the ketubah or the covenant or the surety that he made with us. And what was that surety that he left us? 
Was it money? Was it a signed contract? It was better. It was the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. God left us with himself as a guarantee that he will perform his duty as a bridegroom to bring us home. After the contract was signed and the marriage covenant established, the groom would leave his bride and travel back to his father's house. He was separated from his bride in in Jewish antiquity about 12 months. This time afforded the bride to gather what is called the the trosso, which consisted of wedding apparel, clothes, household linens, other belongings collected by the bride to prepare for married life. The bride would prepare herself to be joined to her groom. Now, during this time of separation, the groom would prepare an addition onto his father's house to which he would later bring his bride as their permanent residence. And at the end of the separation, the bridegroom would travel back to get his bride. And he usually traveled at night with the best man, the escorts, the elders, and did so in usually a torchlight procession. And even though the bride expected her groom to come for her, she did not know when exactly it would take place. So she had to be prepared to go at a moment's notice. The groom's arrival was preceded in the village by a shout and a trumpet blast to herald her imminent departure. What a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That Jesus, after his covenant with us, told his disciples in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, then believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions or many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, ascended back to the Father's house to prepare a place for us. And he's been at it for how long? 2,000 years. 2,000 years. How special will that place be? As the bride of Christ, we are preparing right now to meet him. We are spiritually being sanctified and set apart for Jesus. And we don't know the day or the hour of his arrival, but we do know the times and the seasons that he gives us. Our departure is imminent, meaning it could happen at any moment. And when that day comes, Jesus will arrive with a shout. And that shout is described in 1 Thessalonians four fifteen and through 17. For this we now say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, Comfort one another with these words. We will be snatched up. The word there is harpazo in the Greek. The word rapture does appear in the Latin Vulgate uh, version of the Bible. It's the word raptus. 
forever to be with Jesus. After the groom received his bride together with her female attendees, think of the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, the wedding party made their way back to the groom's father's house where they assembled for the reception. Revelation 19.9 says, Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. Now shortly after their arrival, the bride and groom were escorted by the other members of the wedding party to the bridal chamber in Hebrew called the chuppah. The Jewish bride remained hidden at the groom's father's house for seven days. Similarly, the church will be, remain hidden. This is my eschatology. Don't throw tomatoes at me. Church will remain hidden for a period of seven years during the uh, prophesied tribulation period. After the seven days, the Jewish bride left the bridal chamber unveiled and presented to the public. And by the way, when they went into the hoopah, hidden, that's where they consummated the marriage. There is a day coming when our bridegroom, Jesus Christ, will come and take us to our permanent home, no matter what your eschatology is. And we're living on borrowed time right now. The world is not our home. We cannot get comfortable here. We're preparing for something much greater and much grander. Are you ready to meet the king? Are you ready to make 2022 the year that you and your marriage, that you and your spouse come closer together? Not only in, in Jesus, but in each other. Let's get ready to meet our King. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Father, thank you for creating us the way you did. Thank you for revealing to us in your word the perfect designs for us to flourish. And thank you, most of all, that it reflects the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we have hope in you, Lord. That you have made us one with you. So I pray as we go throughout, I pray that we would be challenged to grow closer to you this year and, and really serve our spouse, Lord. And so, and so that it will be a blessing, not just to us, but to the world. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen.